This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. In the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, a telling scene unfolded at a Justice Can't Wait rally in Bethesda, Maryland, writes Ian Rowe in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week. I will love my black neighbors the same as my white ones, the mostly white residents chanted, many on their knees with both hands in the air, he reports. Mr. Rowe, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, then goes on to say that the messages being conveyed imply that all the challenges facing black Americans can be laid at the foot of whites. This approach is well intended, he says, but, and I quote, it's dangerous for blacks to think we need to depend on whites to dismantle structural racism. Well, I'm very pleased to have with me Ian Rowe on the Education Exchange. Uh, Ian, thank you for joining me today. Paul, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Ian, why do you say it's dangerous for Blacks to think they need to depend on whites to dismantle structural racism? Who else can do that? Well, Paul, th thanks for giving me the opportunity to uh, speak about the article. Just a little bit of background. Uh, I, uh, for the last decade, have run uh, Public Prep, which is a network of elementary and middle public charter schools that are in the heart of the South Bronx. We have about 2,000 students, uh, primarily Black and Hispanic students, primarily from low-income communities. And the number one uh, uh, thing that we want to impart to our young people is the belief and the ability that they have what we call individual agency that their personal decisions and actions have the greatest level of influence over their life outcomes. Your listeners may be familiar with the concept of grit, which is often uh, referred to as the relentless you know, perseverance in pursuit of a goal. But one doesn't develop that dogged self-determination or grit if you actually don't believe that your efforts matter or that you believe that someone else is responsible for your life outcomes. Agency is a precursor to grit. And if you don't have agency, if you feel that, you know, if you don't feel that, you know, if you feel that someone else must take an action first before you can achieve your life outcomes, then that's what I think is in the inherent danger. And in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, a dominant narrative seemed to be emerging that structural racism, while it exists, is the key factor holding black people down and that white people first need to renounce their privilege in order for black people to succeed. And I felt what was missing from that narrative is the topic of black excellence and individual agency in the stories of literally millions of black people that are succeeding despite the odds. So that's what led me to uh, write the story because it's really a shared responsibility to dismantle any kinds of structural barriers. You know, one of the examples of that uh, is our understanding of uh, race relations uh, and how it has changed and who's contributed to it over the, over the centuries. And uh, too often it's told from the white perspective. So, you know, whites generously did this and that over time. But when you start looking at that history, it's mainly when Blacks take responsibility for themselves and begin to have a major impact that we get transformative events. So I mentioned the Emancipation Proclamation, that emerges out of Black soldiers. 
becoming a very uh, vital force within the uh, Civil War itself. And Frederick Douglass uh, and his, his voice was so important. And then you think of when blacks moved north and started voting and Harry Truman had to appeal to the black community in order to win that election. And all of a sudden we get a desegregation of the armed forces. And then you finally get uh, Brown because of Thurgood. I mean, think of all of the key role that major black figures and masses of black people played in these decisive moments in American history. Oh, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say, uh, as I say now, it's a shared responsibility. We're Americans together uh, of different races. I mean, in today's America, there are millions of whites who would not consider themselves privileged, right? There are many black people who are succeeding despite the odds. What are the common stories that we all should tell to advance our entire community? Not just the interests of, of black people, but all people in our country. The more that we realize we face a, a common struggle and a shared responsibility, I think the better. Each of those examples you mentioned are fantastic. They're certainly that black people have played a role in our own liberation but rarely was it done alone. And that's, I think, an important lesson for today as well. So you are leading a charter school network. I hear that you are just about to step down from uh, uh, public prep. Uh, yes, a 10 year, 10 years yes. of as the chair of the yes. of network. Um, so, you know, the charter schools these days are under heavy pressure and criticism and not least from the civil rights movement, the uh, NAACP, who I just thought about in the context of Thurgood Marshall is now saying that charter schools are contributing to segregation, there should be no further expansion. How do you respond to these criticisms that are coming from the very key important sources of uh, progress within the uh, black community in years past. I have to say it is puzzling, you know, as someone who has for the last decade run a network of charter schools in the heart of the South Bronx. I mean, in, in the South Bronx, um, in that last year's lottery, we had a waiting list of nearly 5,000 families, you know? And so when we call a family to say they've, they've won a seat in the lottery, you could hear the, the shrieks of joy, but it is, it is heartbreaking to have to make nearly 5,000 calls or emails to say that the best we can do is put your child's name on an excruciatingly long wait list. So the truth is I don't understand why organizations like the NAACP would, or Black Lives Matter would ask for a moratorium on charter schools. I mean, we have whole uh, neighborhoods in places like the Bronx, where literally 0% of black children are reading at grade level, 0%. It's an outrage, and this has been happening for generations. So my hope is that the more that uh, charter schools, and let me say, not every charter school is great, nor is every district school uh, you know, uh, not doing great things for kids. But there are enough examples and there are enough neighborhoods where public charter schools are providing an incredible high quality choice for low income families. And they should have that option. In New York State right now, there's a cap on the number of charter schools that can even open. So the argument is 
made that is that the charters are hurting the public schools. That yes, okay, so there are some good charter schools. People are admitting that. They how can they deny it? It's the evidence is out there with at public prep and other schools, especially in New York City. But but they say it's hurting the public schools. So how do you deal with that argument? Well, the first thing I do is to clarify that charter schools are public schools or just a different type. And that's really important because I think I think that's part of the um, misinformation that starts to create this divide where there shouldn't be. All of the 2,000 students that are within public prep are public school students, tuition free, and our demand is just so high that we have to have a lottery for entry, but there's no criteria you know, for entry. You get a preference based on if you live in the neighborhood or if you live in a public housing project, but there's no selectivity. So first and foremost, we are public schools. And it just isn't true that we are hurting uh, the traditional district schools. In fact, there are a, a, a number of studies that have shown that when there is a concentration of charter schools within a given neighborhood, the entire, at least test score, uh, outputs actually improve across the board. And my hope is that there's a lot more sharing of information between the charter schools and the district schools, because there's things to learn both ways for how we improve the education for all kids within that neighborhood. The uh, schools at public prep, are they elementary schools, middle schools, high schools? What's the What's the age so of the at public prep, they are elementary and middle schools. And our elementary schools, we were one of the first charter networks to invest in pre-K. So our we start at four years old. And in fact, we've done something even um, more special that we've created a partnership with an organization called Parent Child Plus that provides two years of literacy-based home visits to the younger siblings of our current scholars. So imagine starting at 18 months old, every younger sibling of a boys prep or girls prep scholar uh, has two times per week, 30 minutes per visit, an early learning specialist comes into the home, sits with the caregiver and the toddler to help begin building their vocabulary. They bring a book each week to build a library at home. So for two years prior, to our students, these younger siblings entering pre-K, they have a phenomenal immersion in building their vocabulary. So public prep, we actually start all the way from 18 months old for the younger siblings in pre-K, elementary, and middle. So once they graduate from eighth grade, then what happens? So in the current context, uh, public prep has been very successful at getting our uh, eighth grade graduates into some of the best private uh, schools in New York, best parochial schools, some of the better public high schools. But the fact of the matter is we are now achieving a certain scale in terms of the number of eighth grade graduates that it frankly exceeds the number of high quality available high school seats in New York. And that is a challenge not only for public prep, but virtually every other high performing K to eight uh, charter network. So when I am now coming to the end of my tenure, uh, tenure uh, as CEO of Public Prep, I'm now launching a new network of character-based international baccalaureate public charter high schools that'll have an innovative governance structure 
that will actually allow uh, high-performing K-8 networks to partner together to allow their eighth-grade graduates to have a guaranteed option into this high-quality high school. Well, I think this is truly important because one of the great uh, shortages in the country is at the high school level. I mean, we do have charter schools at elementary level in New York City and around the country, and, and, and quite a number of them. They're about, what, 5 6% of the population that the serve, but then it gets smaller at the middle school, and then there's so few charter high schools. But how are you going to build a new network when there's a limit on expansion? So it's a brilliant question that you asked. So you're right about the paucity of high schools. So in the charter world, so for example, and if you look in most cities that have a concentration of charter schools, you're right. There's a there's a concentration at the elementary school level. It's almost like a pyramid. Then it shrinks at the middle school level. Then it's very tiny at the high school level. Uh, so for example, in New York City, there are 186 elementary charter schools but only 29 go all the way through 12th grade. And even those charter high schools are, are only allowing the kids who are in their elementary and middle schools to rise. So the vast majority of kids, even if you get a high quality education at a charter elementary or middle school, you're still thrust into the, of what I call the abyss of that locality's high school selection process, which typically means you don't have very good high school options. So you just asked a very good question, which is, okay, well, but if their charters are capped, how is it possible that you can launch a new network of high schools? And this is what we think is the elegance of this structure that we're proposing and are working with SUNY, uh, our authorizer to make this happen, which is that if a charter uh, school already has a charter that allows it to operate kindergarten through eighth grade, what this process would allow each one of those networks to do is to take that K to eight charter, apply to extend it to K to 12. So you're taking your existing charter and just expanding the number of grades that it's allowed to serve. So you don't need a brand new charter. So imagine if one network does that, another uh, K to eight does that as well. Those two networks can apply in our case to SUNY together and say, we are currently a K to eight network. We now want to be K to 12, but, but for the portion of grades that are nine through 12, we now want to partner with this new entity, in our case, Vertex Partnership Academies, that its core competence is running character-based international baccalaureate high schools. And so that's the, that's the structure. You're basically, you leverage your existing K to eight charters extend them versus applying for new charters. And the, the reason that it's important for these charters to be extended is that's what allows the eighth grade graduate to have a guaranteed seat. Because essentially you're just a returning student in the same way you'd be from elementary to middle school within that charter. So have you met any political opposition to this idea? Uh, not so far. I mean, we're, you know, for most of the elected officials that we are talking to, they are thrilled that there would be another high quality uh, high school option within their neighborhood. And an important point to note uh, 
for Vertex Partnership Academies is that not only would each campus serve a cluster of two to three high-performing K-8 partners that are coming together, we would always accept probably somewhere between 10 to 15% of the student enrollment to be accepted straight by lottery, meaning that there would be students outside of the population of the partner in K-8s. So that's important because we're still a public school and we want to be able to be available to kids who may not have had the benefit of being within one of the partner schools, but still has an opportunity to enter this high school. So let me ask you about public prep in this current uh, form. Uh, how are they doing once they get to college, the graduates that have gone through eighth grade, gone on to private schools or wherever in high school? Um, are they are they doing okay in college? That's been one of the concerns that's been expressed that charter schools may be able to teach students how to read and write, but do they have all the resources it takes to make it through college on their own? It's a great question. The longitudinal measures are very, very important. So the first uh, school within the public prep network started way back when in 2005. Girls prep was the first all-girls public charter school in New York City. We started with kindergarten and first grade. Those girls that started in first grade way back when in 2005 were part of the graduating class for girls prep uh, in uh, 2013. So there were 45 uh, first graders that started in 2005. There were 47 eighth graders that started in 2013. That means, by the way, that we accept transfer students along the way. So rare amongst charter schools, we had more kids graduate than actually started, a very important number. So those 47 girls in 2013 went to some of the best high schools uh, uh, across New York City. And now that same cohort, uh, I can get you the numbers, uh, but a, a large percentage of them are now juniors in college. And so next year, we will actually have the first uh, cohort of girls prep uh, alumni who graduated from eighth grade in 2013, who will be seniors in college. And the colleges that they're attending, it includes Yale, uh, Spelman, uh, our most recent class, they're entering Smith, uh, Skidmore, so we are very, very, very pleased with um, not only the, the types of schools, the colleges and universities that our kids are getting into, but also the persistence rates, which is a very important number uh, to track. And I, I, I don't have them right in front of me, but I'm happy afterwards to provide information uh, for your listeners. But it's something we track very, very closely in that once our eighth graders leave, how are they doing in high school? Are they persistent? What kinds of colleges are they going to? So we've built a you know, pretty robust alumni support mechanism to ensure that we stay in touch with our scholars. So how do we, I mean, it's, it, it, these are great stories and, and uh, building the charter school network upward and outward is uh, really exciting. But then you ask, how about the, you know, you're getting a, a substantial middle class, as you point out in your op-ed piece, that uh, three million 
I think that was the number three million. Yes, uh, uh, black students are in college or graduate school. Uh, so, and I, I, that's a number I, I had not appreciated. That was a really fascinating uh, number to be reminded of. Uh, but there's still millions left. And there's, it, you might even say there's a divide developing within the black community between those who are finding the rungs on the ladder and climbing and those who are still desperately uh, left in uh, really, uh, um, you know, discouraging situations. So how do we address that larger problem? It's a good question. And we really have to have some tough conversations because the defining line which may have been uh, race or class in the past is much more now focused on family structure so and and this cuts across race so if you you know I cite data in the uh, in the essay uh, about how the black middle class has risen since the 1960s and what are the factors and those factors typically are related to the formation of the family that the series of decisions that individuals make typically related to first finishing your high school degree full-time work marriage then children in that order when folks follow that series of decisions 97 percent of the time people who've done that have fallen, who, who enter the middle class or beyond. That, and that, that's data that transcends race. And so you're correct in that there is a divide within the black community, there's a divide within the white community of where folks who have those behaviors generally, again, life is no guarantee, but generally when you follow those steps, you're much more successful. So that's why we have to have the moral courage to talk about things like the non-marital birth rate, particularly the young women in the black community, in the white community. Well, that's certainly an area where we can, uh, white people and black people together can address a common problem. I couldn't agree with you more, but what can we do about it? I mean, what is it, I mean, is there, is it, can the government do something about it? What are the tools that can help address this? You know, I, th I think there are a couple of different levers. Situation. Yeah. yeah, I think there are a couple of different levers. I mean, there, there's certainly things from a governmental um, process we can do, which I'll, which I'll note. But, you know, we don't want to underestimate the power of cultural norms. And first letting kids know that there are certain behaviors that give them a much greater likelihood of success. We often talk about the rights, you know, people are protesting that, you know, we should have the right um, to, uh, to be, you know, healthcare, right to, uh, to be safe in our communities. All of those things are true. But America is actually built on rights and responsibilities, that there are behaviors that you owe it to yourself and the rest of the citizenry to pursue. And so, in schools, for example, one of the things that I think would be very helpful on this question of how to address the explosion in non-marital birth rates, let's teach the data associated with the success sequence. How many kids know that 97% of the time, if I follow these behaviors, these are my likely outcomes? Again, 
There's no guarantee in life. But if you don't even know that, then you don't even have the basis upon which to make good decisions. You just said yourself, the, the number of black students in college or graduate school, 3 million, you weren't aware of that. If you weren't aware of that and you, you, know, you run a podcast in education, imagine a low-income kid in the heart of the South Bronx. They may think that their only reality is to be another George Floyd. And it's just not true. Every instance of something like happens to a George Floyd should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But I deliberately in the essay made a contrast between the 23 unarmed black people that were killed by police in 2018 and the more than 3 million who were in college or graduate school. Our kids need to have an understanding of that proportionality and then the steps many of those kids in the 3 million, either their parents made or they're making now, that have put them on that pathway to power. Well, I, I do know there's a slogan out there that may be worth uh, hyping, and that is uh, how to become a millionaire. You have to get married, you have to stay married, and you have to save a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, so, these, things, these things sound funny, and, and maybe because of the worlds in which you and I reside, that's just common sense. But for many young people, the institutions through which young people would have learned the, the, the passageways into young adulthood that would have given them the greatest likelihood of success, you know, they would have learned these things through their own home, through their neighborhood, because they saw lots of other examples of stable families around them, or their local, their local faith community, or the media. Those institutions are no longer necessarily the ones that impart these messages. So it's really incumbent now on schools, at least in the short term, to communicate that these decisions around education, work, marriage, children, really matter. And given, if you really believe that there are structural barriers that are so high, the last thing you wanna do is not follow the actual sequence that others who have been in the same situation that you have have followed those to great success. Well, thank you very much, Ian, for these words of wisdom and for this uh, really extraordinarily uh, story you have been telling us about public prep and its uh, future and uh, for your insights into how white people and black people can together make a better future. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you very much for having me. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. I've been speaking with Ian Rowe, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and for 10 years has been the CEO at Public Prep. We release a new podcast on the Education Next website every Monday at noon. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange.